Thanks to Harry's for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Guys can be hard to shop for, but Harry's is the perfect gift. He doesn't need another wallet or more socks this year, right? So get your holiday shopping done early. Free shipping ends on December 12th, so act now. Go to harrys.com slash fool to get $5 off a shave set while supplies last. That's harrys.com slash fool. Thanks to Slack for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Slack is a collaboration hub for work that makes sure the right people in your team are always in the loop and key information is always at their fingertips. Learn more at slack.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick and I'm joined by Not Bro. In fact, it's Jason Moser and Ross Anderson. They're here to help us tackle the November mailbag, including your questions about dividend yields, investing for the next generation, and paying off student loan debt. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Hey guys, thanks for joining us today. Howdy. Thanks for having us. So excited. It feels weird not having Bro in the studio, but... I'm going to try to bring in some bring of some my bro. bro-ness. I mean, longtime listeners will know that bro was my fool buddy almost nine years ago when Aww. I actually started here. So, this one's for you, bro. I'm going to try to, try to Ross, fill that void a little bit. What are you bringing to the table? I mean, bro hired me. So, I, I, I feel well, like... and you see, it's... Yeah, the, the, all of us. the mistakes that have followed are really his fault. <laughs> yeah. So, this is payback. Bro is really here. He's he just uh, here. He's just not. In our hearts. All right, well, let's get into it. First question comes from Mike. A few years ago, I was promoted into a role that pays an annual bonus. Coincidentally, it was around the same time I was reviewing life insurance plans with my agent. He sold us on a universal life plan. My bonus would cover the annual payment. As I have become more financially astute, partially thanks to all the Motley Fool podcasts and services, yay, I am starting to second-guess my decision to buy into this plan. So, let's get into the questions. Does your team have any balanced insight into why universal life plan policies are useful and where they are detrimental? Being in a middle-class income bracket, am I the right profile for a policy like this? What are the penalties of risk for opting out of the plan? Well, so, okay. There's a lot to unpack here. (laughs) Let's Uh, do it. Yeah, so so and and on the universal life or all permanent life insurance, and I'll, I'll break that down in just a second. There are extreme fans and extreme haters, uh, and so we are going to try and take a balanced approach here. Uh, but in the life insurance world, you've got two major categories. You've got term life, which is a short-term product. It is meant to cover you for a certain period of time. You're generally getting the lowest cost, and the reason that you're getting the lowest cost is that it's likely that it never pays out. If you're a young person and you get a 20-year policy, we hope you don't need it. I hope you're flushing your money down the toilet. If you're using that policy, it means you're dead. Sorry. Yeah. Right. The purpose of that is really to protect for your loss of income or resources if something happens to you before you would expect it to. Permanent life insurance is a second category that is intended to last your whole life. And so there's kind of three versions of it, whole life, universal life, and variable universal life. But so let's put all of those in a category. Those plans are appropriate for somebody that needs life insurance to go on forever. If it has to pay out and you need that life insurance, that's normally going to address something like an estate planning goal, or if you've got an estate tax issue, or if you just want to make sure that your family, for some giving purpose, has the resources and liquidity there at the end of life, regardless of when that is, that's when a permanent life insurance product is appropriate. The way they get sold a lot is on the benefit of tax-free withdrawals. Mm. Because the way they work is, let's let's say, Jason, your life insurance is going to cost you 50 bucks a month for a term life policy. Instead of paying 50 bucks a month, we're going to bill you 200 bucks a month. We're going to take the extra 150, we're going to put it in an account, and it's going to grow. 
And that's going to ultimately support that life insurance contract long term. And they'd sell it with these really, really bold claims about, well, you can borrow from that money and it's tax-free. You can take out of that money and you're not going to have any other investments that can do that. Uh, what you're borrowing out of is your own money. All loans are tax-free. If you borrow money for a house and you and you make a house payment from going forward, you're not being taxed on that money. So uh, I always had to take a little bit of issue with that. The real question here is, do you need permanent life insurance? And if not, now that you have it, what do we do? Now let's hope I didn't just lose everybody with that. But <laughs> here, here's the issues with it. If you surrender a policy early on, there's generally big penalties and fees. The reason is that they paid your insurance agent a commission when he sold it to you, and those have to be repaid from somewhere. They're going to take that out of your money if you give up the policy early. So if you decide that you don't need the policy, here's what you can consider. Number one, you can ask them for a policy modification. So let's say you took out a $250,000 policy. You might be able to lower it to $150,000 or $100,000 without penalty, make a lower premium payment, and start kind of compressing that, and maybe you get some term life to balance out how much total insurance you need. Um, so your questions that you want to ask the agent if you're preparing for a review, number one, what is my surrender fee, and, and do I have one still? Number two, what is the crediting rate? How, how fast is the cash accumulating in this policy? Could I reduce the payment if I lower how much insurance that I need? And I, I think you really need to go back to the drawing board a little bit and decide, do I need life insurance that goes on forever, or am I trying to co protect my income for a short period of time? Because that, that's the main thing that you're really trying to decide here. And then if you don't need permanent life insurance, there's a couple ways that you could scale it back or ultimately get out of it over the next few years, hopefully without a penalty. Great. I didn't think that was boring at all. Huh. I well, I, I have to I have to be careful with the insurance answers because I I really kind of geek out on how the policies are built and what they were supposed to do. It could be the perfect policy and the perfect tool for a situation. The problem is they get sold wrong mm -hmm. a lot, mm -hmm. and they get sold to people that don't necessarily need all of those features. And so hopefully uh, Mike isn't in that situation and 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 he has a use for it. But if not, getting out of it needs to be strategic. Yeah. All right. Next question comes from Twitter, and it comes from Joe. Thanks for giving me a hot tip. I had cash in my Roth and bought 500 shares of Amazon at $185. Wow. Now, along with 3,000 of Microsoft at 30, should I diversify or hang tough? I have 13 years to retire. Aloha, Joe from Hawaii. Oh, aloha, Joe. Aloha, indeed, because at those prices, Joe, you're sitting on some very, very nice gains. And I think I, we need to go see him in person to answer this question, to yeah, really give it the well, attention it I needs. I mean, it seems like it wouldn't be... I mean, he, he, he could probably fly us all out there based on what Thank I'm, what you, Joe. Right we here, look right? forward to um, our receiving our tickets in the I, So, uh, this, is, you know, this is going to be a unique uh, question that everyone has to answer, right? And we, t we often talk about buying and selling, and, and when is the best time to sell. All sorts of reasons to sell. Either your thesis is busted, the company's not working out for you, it's just been a bad investment, or perhaps you need the money for something else, perhaps you feel like the money is better allocated somewhere else, um, or perhaps, as could be in Joe's case here, um, given what we know based on the information he's given us, it's it's possible that he may be losing a little sleep at night, thinking, mm. "Wow, you know, I've got a lot of money now allocated to these two individual companies." Now, I can't tell from this email or from this from this tweet how much this makes up of his overall investment portfolio, but I'd venture that it's you know somewhat significant. In that case, I personally would probably look at maybe spreading that that uh, 
money around a little bit. I mean, usually when it comes to IRAs, I mean, everybody's tax situation is unique, but when it comes to IRAs, you can buy and sell, and you're not going to worry about tax implications there. Um, I just, yeah, I feel like with that type of gain, it probably is worth looking at spreading that money around a little bit. And I think the reason why I say that for Joe is because not only is he saying he has 13 years to retire, but he's actually saying retire. And I mean, a lot of people out there are gunning for retirement, right? They have that in their mind. And and you know, I think about retirement, it's a bit more abstract. I mean, I'm not necessarily wanting to quit my work anytime soon, so my investment decisions are a little bit different. But when you're looking at that, it might be time to start focusing a little bit more on protecting your wealth. Maybe take some money off the table there, put them into some lower risk, perhaps some dividend style investments there, because Amazon is clearly a growth story. Microsoft, a little bit less so, but it's a big tech company nonetheless. Um, so, I, I would definitely look at maybe spreading that, that out. Ross, you probably get questions like this a lot. I, I do. I, I was actually going to ask, Jason, what is your threshold? When, when you see a single position <coughs> in a portfolio, where, where, do, where do you start getting uncomfortable? See, this is where I would say, do as I say, not as I okay. do, because I think I have a much higher risk tolerance than most people out there. And a part of that is because of the nature of my job. Um, I mean, I've had a position at 40% of my portfolio wow. before, and it didn't really cause me any concern. Again, I kind of knew what I was doing. Um, and you don't I, feel I, like you're 13 years from retirement. I am not 13 years from retirement. I've told David Gardner personally that I will let, I will work here until he kicks me out of here. <laughs> so, hopefully, that's never. Um, and it Knocking on forty-six here, I think I still have a number of years left, uh, you know, to contribute. But yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people. I think twenty percent is that number. They think twenty percent. Whoa, that's where I'm starting to lose sleep. And, and and I think that number is just different for everyone, and it depends on your age too. If you're in that stage where you're growing your wealth at 20, 30, 40 years old versus fifty, sixty, maybe you're focusing on protecting your wealth. That's where you have to to assess. Um, and, and like I said, it's going to be different for everyone. But I think, given what we know here, based on the math, that's a pretty big position in both of those companies. It'd be worth probably looking at uh, spreading that risk around a little bit. Yeah. The, the, the final thing I'll say on it, uh, I would I would do the math personally and say if it if you if the company lost half its value, if you chopped it in half, would that change your plans? Mm. And if it would, it's probably too much risk for you. All right. Next question comes from Keith. About six years ago, I inherited my father's IRA. So far, I've only taken the required minimum distributions each year. This year, due to an extended job search, my wife and my income will be considerably less than it has been in the past year. Given that temporary drop in income and the fewer tax brackets now, should I take a larger distribution this year in an attempt to take advantage of this low tax year of ours? I'd only take enough to keep it in the same tax bracket and would either move the investments into a post-tax brokerage account for our retirement or alternatively cash the distribution out and pay down a variable interest HELOC whose rates have been climbing up. Thanks, Keith. All right, so I am sorry to hear that the job search is taking longer uh, than anticipated, but I love the question. Uh, This is a perfect question because you're doing some tax planning right now, and that is perfect. So, in low tax years, and and in the situation he outlined, this is a perfect example of one. Another one would be somebody that retires maybe before they're ready to take Social Security and has a few years of like low or no taxes, no income coming in. Uh, that is a perfect time to look at some tax planning. So yes, I would consider accelerating some distributions. Now, if you're going to use the money to pay off some some debt or or some current cash needs, that's totally fine. 
if you're going to invest the dollars, uh, I would actually encourage you to look at a Roth conversion instead, because you're going to pay the exact same taxes, except you can move that money into a Roth IRA, where it's going to grow tax-free and come out tax-free later on. And that would be even better to supercharge your low tax year. All right. Next question comes from Josh. I have a question about dividend yields. I often see them written out as a percentage. For instance, I see on Fool.com that AT&T currently has a dividend yield of 6.2%. Is that equivalent to an interest rate? With banks still paying less than 2%, a 6% interest rate sounds great, but I'm not sure if a dividend yield is essentially the same thing. That's a good question. And in short, it is essentially the same thing in that you are either going to get paid for having your money in a savings account or with a CD, or you're going to get paid by a company who offers a dividend for hanging on to their stock. Uh, now, typically, a company is going to pay a dividend four times a year, once every quarter. And that rate or that percentage that you see the yield is the, it's based on the amount that they pay out compared to the stock price. So that can certainly fluctuate. But generally speaking, particularly in today's uh, interest rate environment, dividends are a far more attractive option. And I think they will be that way for some time to come because even though rates will continue to go up, they will go up fairly slowly. Uh, and, and companies, generally speaking, these companies that pay dividends are pretty reliable. Their business models produce some pretty reliable cash flows that allow them to keep paying those dividends and oftentimes raising those dividends. So, if you really want to find the awesome dividend companies, you look for the dividend aristocrats. And those are the companies that have grown those dividends for long periods of time. I think the qualifier is at 25 years or is it 30 years? I have to double check that. But anyway, they have a very long track record established of growing those dividends on an annual basis. So, we'll probably hit a point in time where interest rates become a little bit more attractive. And when that happens, you're very likely to see some of those dividend stocks prices take a little bit of a hit as money starts to flow towards more risk-free assets. But for now, and I think really as an investment strategy on the whole, it's always a good idea to plan on owning some good staid dividend payers for long periods of time. All right. Next question comes from Bill. I'm currently 55 years old and have a lingering pension from a job I left several years ago. I can retire now, according to Fidelity, and they offer a lump sum payout for the plan. I'm still working at the moment and contributing to a 401k with my current employer, not planning to really retire for at least 10 more years. Should I take the 40, roughly 42,000 lump sum and roll it into my IRA account, or wait till 65 and take roughly 63,000 lump sum? I could also do the annuity at 165 or 388 at the respective ages. Don't need any of this at the moment, or even likely after I retire. So, it can go to high-risk investments like stocks, or I could use it for my two boys' college education. They are 13 and 16 at the moment. All right. So, um, there's a lot of math in there, but let's talk about the first thing. Let's compare the lump sum options. So, if you're 55 now and the 65 payout would give you a bump from 42000 to 63000 the implied interest rate in that is about 4%. Hmm. They're giving you 4% annually on that money compounded to leave that money with them at Fidelity. Now, the market is generally going to give you more than that if we stretch out to longer time periods, historically 7 to 10% on US stocks. Um, over the short term, that can be highly variable. So, over a five, even a 10 year period, whether or not you beat 4% is going to be based on your investing track record and, and then what the market's giving you. So, uh, I would generally believe if what you said is true that the money is not needed, I would probably invest it rather than take a 4% guaranteed gain. Uh, 
and and that that's partially my own risk tolerance and and how I view it, but also how you explain the the situation that it's not necessarily there as a needed thing, where the pension or the annuity version of the pension payout is really going to be there if you wanted to offset some risk elsewhere in your portfolio. Um, so I would probably recommend that you take the lump sum. The only thing that gave me a little bit of pause was your your note at the end uh, of using it for your boy's education. Uh, with a 16-year-old, if you're 55 and you move all this money into an IRA, you do not have penalty-free access to this money until 59 and a half. Mm. So you've got a little bit of a window there where you don't have overlap. Uh, for your 13-year-old, you'll you'll be well past that age. There are some tricky ways to get at IRA money early, but if you're going to take that that lump sum, I would be looking for other ways to fund those first couple years of college for your 16-year-old. Next question comes from Vin. Can anyone at TMF explain what happens when a company you own sells to another company, as in what happens to the stock? I own Mazer Robotics, which recently sold to Medtronic. Do my Mazer shares automatically convert to Medtronic or automatically cash out once the sale is complete? Do I have to do anything, like sign an agreement for my shares or sell the shares to Medtronic or do nothing, and it magically takes care of itself in the mysterious trading world? So, the short answer is yes. Oh, great! Yes. Um, it's an interesting situation because there are a lot of different ways this this can be resolved for you, and and so we'll use Mazer Robotics as the example because that's the example that was given. Um, but there is a recent deal where Medtronic has acquired uh, or has agreed to acquire Mazer Robotics, and this is an all cash deal. So Medtronic is going to pay all cash for this. The deal has already been approved, and it is expected to close during Medtronic's third quarter ending. January twenty fifth, two thousand and nineteen. So basically, they're they're sort of tying a bow on everything and making sure the regulatory environment will allow for this acquisition to happen. It all looks like it will. Uh, so when we look at that all together, the deal, Medtronic is going to pay fifty eight dollars and fifty cents per share in cash for Mazer Robotics. Which means if you own shares of Mazer Robotics, Medtronic is going to give you fifty eight fifty per share. In cash, and you can see that Mazer Robotics today is trading pretty close to that to that price. That indicates that the market thinks this deal is likely to go through. Now you can sit there and wait to see if maybe there's a better offer. Perhaps another company might come in and say, "You know what? We like Medtronic's offer, but we're going to even we're going to raise it. We're going to pay sixty five dollars a share for for Mazer Robotics." That's always a possibility. Now the market is telling us. Probably not going to happen, right? And I think in Mazer's case, they'd like to be a part of the Medtronic family anyway. Uh, so it is a little bit of a gamble there if you decide to go ahead and sell your shares and move on. Uh, oftentimes, when you see the market giving us signs the way it's giving us signs today that they feel like this de- this deal is going to go through, that means you can sell your shares of of Mazer, go ahead and be done with it. You can move on and reinvest that money somewhere else. Otherwise, if you decide to just wait it out, then you will have to wait for the deal to close, which it sounds like will be by the end of January 2019. Now, I will say one caveat there, and you need to be careful of this because some brokerages out there will sneak this by you and you won't even see it. If you let this go through and you just let them do all the work the for you, mysterious magic, there will be world, this. Yeah. There will sometimes be sort of this ghost fee that comes into play here, as opposed to just selling and taking that seven dollar or five ninety five commission that mm-hmm. your brokers normally charge you. Sometimes they'll tack on like a twenty five dollar, you know, closing fee or whatever huh. it may be. And in that, I mean, while it's not debilitating, it's kind of insulting and a little bit frustrating, <laughs> and I like to avoid it at all costs. So you can sit there and do the math and try to figure out which way works better for you. Typically, my my train of thought is that when I see a deal like this, it looks like it's getting ready to go through. 
I just go ahead in the relationship, sell the shares, and move on. Of course, everybody has their own choice, but hopefully, I've given you some information there to uh, to make the decision that's best for you. All right, and we're going to talk more about this in a couple more questions. We're going to sure. talk more about when companies take over other companies. So, all right, next question comes from Nikki. My husband and I have always invested almost exclusively in our IRA accounts, maxing them out each year, and have been focused on solid solid dividend paying stocks so that they can compound over time, and we can use them to supplement our income in retirement. However, due to a promotion for me and a new job for him, it's likely we will be right at, if not over, the income limit for 2019 to be able to contribute to an IRA. We are hesitant to invest in those same stocks in a regular brokerage, as it's not as tax efficient. I've never done any real research on any non-dividend paying stocks since that um, that was never really our strategy. Can you point us in the right direction when it comes to investing in non-dividend paying stocks, or at least how to invest in a regular brokerage in a tax efficient way? More tax talk. All right, Russ loves it. I do. Um, okay, so the the first thing I'll tell you is that no matter what you're making, you can generally make an IRA contribution, and it may be non-deductible. So you may be earning out of that deductible IRA range, but but you should be able to still make a non-deductible IRA contribution if you choose to. Um, but let's talk about investing in a taxable brokerage account because I think this is something that people miss a lot. I see a lot of investors that come to us and they're getting ready to retire and it's all IRA money or it's mm-hmm. all 401k money because that's been the easiest place to do their recurring savings. A taxable brokerage account is actually a pretty tax efficient place to invest. You get a couple of things that work for you. Number one, if you buy a stock and it goes up and you've held it for more than a year, you're going to be paying capital gains rate on the gains, not your income tax rate. So even as your stocks go up in an IRA, ultimately someday you're going to need to take money out of that and you're going to pay ordinary income taxes on all of that money coming out of a pre-tax IRA. Where I think you actually get a really nice benefit that it is an attractive tax rate when you sell a stock for a gain in a taxable brokerage account. Number 2, there's two different types of dividends that can be paid. One is a qualified dividend, the other is a ordinary dividend. And the ordinary dividend is going to be taxable at your income rate right now, but a qualified dividend is giving you the same tax preference that a long-term capital gain would. Um, Here's the bottom line for me. We've got a saying, don't let the tax tail wag the investment dog. (laughs) If If you have a company that you think is an attractive overall total return strategy, that's a great company to own, whether it's going to be in an IRA or not. You can from a tax location perspective, you could say that a non-dividend paying stock may be a little bit more efficient in a taxable brokerage account. But ultimately, if those are the companies you believe in, I'm not going to tell you to change your strategy. But my personal favorite companies, things like Amazon and like Alphabet and Google, those are not dividend paying companies. They are growth stocks. Um, I think there's a lot of research that you can get to in terms of what growth stocks may be appropriate for you. And that's something that I think you should at least explore, but don't necessarily feel like you have to change your strategy just to invest in a new account. Thanks to Harry's for supporting Motley Fool Answers. The holidays are here, which means you can give the gift of a great shave at an amazing price, delivered right to your loved one's door. All thanks to Harry's. Jason, tell me about how much you love Harry's. Well, I know when I walked in the studio today, you all were like, wow, that's a smooth shaved face right there. Look at that. <laughs> we all took what? turns. The fact of the it. matter is, I did shave this morning with a Harry's razor and Harry's shaving cream. And I'll tell you what, that's one of those subscriptions they could probably double the price and I wouldn't even blink. It is so convenient and so useful. I love it. Wow. Harry's and Amazon Prime. I put them in the same category. Ah, so convenient. Yep, so you great. Could double it and I probably wouldn't even blink. Well, 
For those listening at home, <laughs> if you want to learn more, you can give a gift set from Harry's, and they look so fancy schmancy. As a special offer for fans of the show, we've partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off any shave set, including the limited edition holiday sets, when you go to harrys.com fool. Plus, you'll get free shipping. This offer is for new and returning customers, Jason Moser, <laughs> and is only available for the holidays. Each Harry's shaving set comes with an ergonomically weighted handle with an option to engrave, German-engineered five-blade cartridges that provide a close, comfortable shave, foaming shave gel for a rich lather, a travel cover to protect your blades, a handsome holiday gift box, or just want something for yourself, you can redeem a Harry's trial offer to experience the quality of shave before committing. Get your holiday shopping done early. Free shipping ends on December 12th, so act now. Go to harrys.com slash fool to get $5 off a shave set while supplies last. That's harrys.com slash fool. Thanks to Slack for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Slack is a collaboration hub for work, whatever work you do. With Slack, the right people in your team are kept in the loop, and the information they need is always at their fingertips. Teamwork on Slack happens in channels, letting you organize conversations and information around projects, offices, and teams. And because everything you need to work is in one place, it's faster and easier to get things done. With Slack, your team is better connected. This team is certainly better connected on <laughs> Slack. We did a lot of sharing files, episodes, ideas, nagging. I didn't nag you guys, but I do hey, a fair listen, amount of nagging on Slack. I, even, I slack during the weekend. It's all whatever you do on your own time is your own business. It's all made easier because of Slack. Slack, where work happens. Learn more at slack.com. That's slack.com. Send me an email with all, the all right, next question comes from Hugh. Recently, I have been faced three times with one company buying up shares or buying outright or merging with another company. The choices are clear. Sell or hold on and see what happens. My question, how should one think about the choices? What is a rational approach to evaluating the companies? What information should I collect about each company, or at least the takeover company, to be able to kill the alternative choice and decide what action in action would be best for me? Are there any investing rules of thumb? Ha ha. That must be a long-time listener of the show. <laughs> we haven't talked about that in a long time. Uh, and Can that guide decisions such as get out, sell as early as possible? Yeah, I mean, we see this on occasion. It's not always, but sometimes a company may offer to buy up another company by uh, issuing stock in the acquiring company um, versus the acquired. Or you may see a situation where the company being bought is just going to be cash outright, and then you don't have to really worry about that, right? Um, you look at something like the example we talked about before with Medtronic and Mazer Robotics, there's not really a choice there at the end of the day. You're just going to get that cash and move on. You don't have to worry about continuing a relationship with Medtronic because they're not forcing you to. But sometimes a company will make an acquisition by issuing more stock, and then and then uh, you, you may very well be stuck by owning that company. Um, and in that case, you do have to make a decision. Now, you may not have a choice in the in the near term in that you will be given those shares of that company based on the closing of the transaction. But then, yeah, you have to look at that acquiring company and decide if it's one that you want to be an owner of. Now, is there a rule of thumb? Is there a rational approach to it? I mean, that's what we do for a living, or at least what I do for a living every day, right? It's analyzing these businesses to try to determine whether they're worth owning or not. So, I'd imagine we could go on for an hour just talking about a fundamental analysis of companies, but I think that, generally speaking, what I like to see in businesses that I own, 
I like to see that there's an attractive, growing market opportunity out there. I like to know that there is a smart leadership team, a leadership team that I believe in and that I trust. And I like to know that the company that's that's making the acquisition has a good balance sheet in place so that I'm not going to be worried about their financial position going forward. If those three things exist, then I feel like maybe there's more research to be done there, and it's worth considering. But but there may be there may be a situation where you feel like the company that's making that big acquisition is just beyond the line. You don't want to own it. I mean, there are people out there don't want to own tobacco companies. I get it, you know, and that that's a pretty easy decision to make. Everybody's line is a little bit different. You have to be able to determine your own. Uh, but those are some things to think about if you get uh, you know put in this situation. And you probably don't need to like make a decision immediately, right? Like no, you can take your time and do your research. And I, I think as as with most things in life, uh, it always does it always does better to just sleep on it. Maybe don't yeah, you don't need to make a hasty decision. I mean, take a take a moment to to think about it. Reach out. I mean, if you have particular companies that you want to discuss, I mean, we are here and we can discuss those companies. We can't give you advice. Necessarily, but we can tell you about those companies and about how we feel. We can tell you whether we like them or don't like them, mm-hmm. um, and that can give you a better idea as to whether we feel like those are businesses worth owning. And, and again, I mean, everybody's investing strategy is a little bit different. Their timeline is a little bit different. We obviously espouse owning good businesses for the long haul. So that's what that's our north star. That's guide. That, that's what guides how we we look at investing. All right. Next question comes from Ricky. I graduated college almost four years ago and still have about twenty five thousand in student loan debt. Knowing it would not be wise to touch my home equity or 401k account yet, I just turned 26, I finally reached the point where I could empty my brokerage account and emergency savings and completely pay off my student loans. I just feel like emotionally it would feel defeating as those would basically be empty after working hard to build those over the last three years. Would it be wise to pay off the student loans now, or would it be better to make aggressive payments for the next several years? Also, side note, about a year ago I moved to Nampa, Idaho, and heard Allison mention on the show that she grew up in Caldwell, small world. Yes, it's a small <laughs> Idaho, that's for sure. So enjoy Nampa. All right. So, Ricky, uh, first of all, I love that you're a listener. I love that you're thinking about this stuff at 26. You are well ahead of the game. Right? Of Way many ahead of, your of my game. Congratulations. Whoa. All right. Uh, so, the one detail that I don't have here that I would like to have to answer your question is what are you paying in interest on the student loan debt? So I know kind of what you have resources-wise that's available. The first thing that I would say is that don't drain your emergency fund. That emergency fund is just that. This is not an emergency. This is kind of a, a, a strategic decision, but not an emergency. And the reason that that's there, if you have a loss of income, if you have a big unexpected bill, you still want to have that liquidity. Now, whether or not you pay off some of that student loan debt using the brokerage account, I think depends on on what you're paying in interest. And and I'll try and give you at least a, a guideline. If you were paying sub 5%, if your student loan debt is under 5%, I'd probably keep it. I, I think you're ultimately going to do better in a long-term investing strategy than 5%. If you were somewhere between, let's call it 5 and 7, you're kind of on the bubble. If you're paying north of 7% interest on that student loan debt, I probably would take the money out of the brokerage account and pay it off. Um, uh, and again, it, you, you may have a different tolerance for risk than I do, but but for me, I wouldn't bet hard that I'm going to earn way more than seven percent, uh, even though I hope that I would on long-term investments. Um, but that for me would be my threshold where I would pay off the debt, at least get rid of half of it, and then make as aggressive payments as you can over the next few years to get it totally out and off your mind, so that you're not worried about it anymore. Um, but how much that debt is costing you is is the big variable there. 
Yeah, and that's why we talk about always, like, not all debt is bad debt. Like, it drives me nuts when people say that, because, I mean, there is good debt out there. I mean, if you have a mortgage, that's good debt. It enables you to live in a house, and you're probably paying less on that mortgage than you would earn over a long-term investment strategy. Totally. And, uh, yeah, I just, I don't, the blanket statement, all debt is bad, I just, I hear that often, and I don't, I don't like it. I, you got to be careful with that. I, I like to spar with bro on this, so yeah. sadly, Jason, you're not bro, but uh, <laughs> bro always Pretend talks about paying off your, your mortgage going into retirement, and for a lot of reasons, it is a satisfying thing to do. Um, to me, at, at the interest rates we've been at, I can't make the math work. Yeah. For, for that case, I just can't. If I've got you know sub four percent debt, I'm going to keep it as long as I can. That's cheap money. Um, well, I'd, I, I'd rather have the money elsewhere. I'll give you another real life example. I mean, I'm sitting here looking. So I have a car loan, right? I got a new car in 2015, and Ford gave me a zero percent mm-hmm. interest uh, loan to to pay off over five years. I think it was. So I'm sitting here for five years with a zero percent loan now. I could pay that off tomorrow, and it would be very satisfying to know that, that obligation is fulfilled. However, Month by month, I'm finding, and I've seen this over the course of the last three years, that money is, I'm finding that money to be better served over, over, you know, all sorts of different types of investment opportunities that come up. Uh, so, so yeah, while, while it could be satisfying to pay that off, it doesn't cost me really anything. If I eliminate it, yeah, I get the satisfaction and I don't have to worry about that in the future. It's another uncertainty that's erased, but I kind of like my chances over the next couple of years to be able to satisfy that debt regardless. So string it out as long as you can, right? And then once the five years are over, are you going to pay it off? Well, whole, yeah, I mean, it'll all be done, clock, right? Yeah. The whole thing will be done. It's just every month I get to pay yeah. towards the car, but the, you know, the auto company is not charging me at all for the loan. So yeah. I mean, if I can use somebody else's money for free, I'll yeah, always do That's the to definition it. of free money. I mean, you might as well string it out for as long as you can. All right, next question comes from Nate. Two stocks in my portfolio have experienced major losses to their share price, Square and Tesla. Both have had an announcement regarding their CFO leaving, and the stock had 10 to 15% losses the next day, which may translate into the departure of a single employee who is able to contribute 1,700 to 2,400 hours per year to their job, makes the company's market value decrease by approximately $3.4 billion or more. That was a valuable employee. How much should a reasonably foolish investor value a specific executive on a board of a publicly traded company? How should a company's compensation plan for a specific executive change in order to ensure they compensate for the value they apparently deliver to the company? Sure. Emphasis yeah, mine. <laughs> very, very good question because I think it, it compares two very different companies. Um, and I own shares in one and I don't own shares in the other. Right? Oh, yeah, I, I own Square. shares in Square, yeah, I do not I own, own shares Tesla. in Tesla. Now, I, I mean, I like that. You know, I like that Nate went through and did the math here, and I appreciate that. Now, let's also remember that this all doesn't just fall back to the departure of a CFO. I mean, at the end of the day, you've still got two companies here, neither of which is profitable. All right, so Wall Street's going to be a little bit more nitpicky with these types of companies in the short run, at least, until they build demonstrable, sustainable, profitable business models. So, with all that said, Nate, if a 10 to 15% loss is major in your book, then you may need to diversify because, really, in all honesty, that isn't major. That's pretty much part and parcel with investing in stocks. Uh, 20, 30%, not major. Major is probably a haircut of 50% or more. And, and as Ross mentioned earlier, with that 50%, does that alter your uh, timeline or strategy? Yeah, that I think is, is where major starts, starts coming to play here. Now, if we look to how valuable one person is to any given business, uh, it is definitely going to vary from business to business. Now, I would argue in Tesla's case, the CFO for Tesla is 
not as valuable as you probably would think. I think the key to Tesla is Elon Musk. If Elon Musk disappears from the picture, they're in big trouble. And and I think one of the big reasons is because he's the one who has grown this business from where it was to where it is today. And if you see, he's out there day in, day out, either on Twitter or in the press, really pushing that message. He needs to keep that stock price in a certain range. He knows it, because this is a company that relies a lot on debt to be able to fund the business and keep growing it, because they're not profitable, like we said. Uh, so, for me, the CFO loss with Tesla, not nearly as big of an issue. Now, with Square, I found the departure of Sarah Fryer to be disappointing, not terribly surprising, because she's extremely talented. But in Square's case, this is a company that's sharing a CEO. Jack Dorsey is the CEO of Square. He's also mm-hmm. the CEO of Twitter. Now, he's been criticized for that, but the fact of the matter is, both businesses are performing rather well. Uh, but my point is here that Sarah Fryer really was more than a CFO. She was the most public-facing executive for this company. She was the one, I would venture to guess she probably knows more about the business than Jack Dorsey Mm. does, to be honest with you. And that's not an insult to Jack. I think it's a testament to how uh, strong of an executive Sarah Fryer is. So, for me, uh, to see Sarah Fryer leave, I really do hope that Jack is able to uh, bring someone in who's as uh, aware of the business and the market opportunity that exists. Now, when it comes to compensation, Another subject we could probably drone on for about an hour, and most people don't want to hear it. But uh, it is something where it's, it's going to boil down to opinion. I, I would say that one of the things we tend to do is we go look uh, at a company's filings to see uh, to get a better idea of exactly what a company's compensation strategy is. There's a form called the the DEF 14A that gives you all of the elements of executive compensation. And if you look at Square, for example, it's very interesting. Jack Dorsey's compensation uh, in, in regard to Square, as CEO, his base salary... I'm going to give you a guess here. How much do you think Jack Dorsey's base salary in fiscal year 2017 was at, at Square? Did he, did he go Buffett? Is it like a dollar? Right. He either went a dollar or yeah. It's, it's it's either. I mean, I, I'm assuming it's a low number. It's two dollars and seventy five cents. All right. Yeah. I mean, he's basically <laughs> saying, "Listen, I didn't mean to ruin the punchline." I bought into this business. <laughs> I own a substantial amount of the stock in this company. I'm not worried about the salary. I'm more worried right, about the long-term the success. Paycheck. And Elon Musk owns a big slug of Tesla too. Okay, so I like to see executives bought in like that. Sarah Fryer, her salary was a little bit uh, structured a little bit differently because she didn't have the same skin in the game as Dorsey. But it's all to say that when it comes to executive compensation, we like to see a healthy mix of salary, of ownership, reasonable bonuses based on achievable benchmarks that matter more to shareholders. I think those benchmarks, things like operating income over net income, right? Go for those metrics that can obscure the financials less, not more. Yeah. Um, those are the kinds of things we look for when it comes to compensation. But when you look at a, a, a high-level executive leaving like that, is the reason the market's reacting to it more because it's a symptom? Right. I mean, there's a lot of reasons a person may be leaving a job, but if the company is is suffering and maybe it's not as publicly known, and I'm not saying anything about either of those companies, but is that why the market's going to have a stronger reaction when it's a C level person? Leaving? I think I think that's a fair assumption. I think with Sarah Fryer, it's less a symptom because we know that her ultimate goal was to become a CEO, and she indeed is leaving this job to to take a CEO mm-hmm. role. Mm-hmm. Tesla CFO departing a little bit more nebulous, not terribly uh, not terribly transparent as to what exactly is going on. There. I think we can guess that Tesla's <laughs> not an easy place to work. Um, I mean, and you look at a company, another company like Snap, for example, or even Twitter in its early days when the business was just in shambles and no one really knew what was going on. 
it was like a revolving door. People yeah. didn't want to stick around because they didn't really know what the vision was. And so I think that, you know, it's it's really all back to making sure you have a leader there, a CEO, who's able to give people that confidence, that feeling that there is some sort of a long-term vision and understanding how they're going to get there. Uh, every company is a little bit different, but you, you definitely have to suss that out to get a better idea as to, to whether it's a company you want to be owning or not. The beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> there you That's go. right. All right, last question comes from Kevin. I have a three-month-old and opened her an UGMA account. America funds through my FA. The day we got her her social security number. Oh, that's nice. I have a bi-weekly draw going into the account, and I thought this was a smart idea until about two months ago in. I'm realizing the fund we're in charges 5% of any amount added to the account. Example, when my 100 goes in, 5 is automatically taken out. And this is in addition to the fee of 1.14%. I've also learned that there aren't really any tax advantages, and it could even hurt her financial aid status when applying for college. I know about 5G9 plans, but I don't want these funds restricted to only education. My question, is the fee structure typical of an UTMA? Why shouldn't I just open a separate investment account in my name with much lower fees and give it to her or use on her when she's old enough? Here we All right. Go. So the acronym we're talking about here is a uniform gifts to minors account or a uniform transfers to minors account. UGMA and UTMA, people use those pretty interchangeably a lot. Um, so I actually like that he asked the question that way. They are technically different, but what you open, uh, they're, they're largely going to have the same uh, structure. So is this fee structure typical? No, this is not based on the, the type of account. I've heard of this. Has, has, well, so, so what you're buying right now, and the reason that you're paying 5% is what you set up at the top, which is American funds through your financial advisor. Uh, you are buying what's called an A-share mutual fund, uh, and that is building a sales charge. That is how your financial advisor is getting paid on selling you those funds. So that, that has nothing to do with the structure of the account or the fact that it is a transfer into her name. If you opened that account with any low-cost broker, a Schwab, a Fidelity, an Ameritrade, an E-Trade, you're not going to have that same thing, but you're also going to be on your own for making those investment choices. So if you wanted to buy individual stocks or low-cost index funds, ETFs, you can absolutely do that in those accounts, but you're going to be taking more and more of that responsibility for managing the funds versus having the financial advisor provide so you Is the that 5%? Is that a lo- is that called a load? Is this different than a load, or is this a load? This is yeah. This is a sales charge. Okay. Um, and and so the there's a couple different versions of it. Like a C share fund doesn't have the big upfront charge, mm-hmm. but has a much higher ongoing operating expense because they're going to pay that advisor one percent a mm-hmm. year instead of five percent upfront. So most of the time on an A share fund, he's getting five percent upfront and then a trail of 25 basis points, which is in there as a 12B1 fee. Oh, uh, we love 12B1 12, fees. Those yeah, are marketing <laughs> fees. Yep, that it's a marketing fee. Which is fee. bananas to me. I like I'm literally spitting. I'm so it's so bananas to me that a mutual someone at a mutual fund company was like, "You know what? We're going to call we're going to call it a fee, a 12B1 fee, and we're going to make our investors pay for us to market the fund." But but it's really not a marketing fee. It's it's going to the advisor. The the marketing is the advisor that sold it. Well, it's still it's still stupid. If I can chime in here just for one little additional thought, because I, I, I mean, I'm fully on board. These fees are absurd. Uh, but having some experience in this realm, like I have two younger daughters, are 12 mm-hmm. and 13 now, and we opened up 529s for them when they were born, uh, and around six or seven years old, uh, we opened up individual brokerage accounts for them. They were with Scott Trade. Yeah. Scott Trade was recently acquired by TD Ameritrade, so now we're all with TD Ameritrade. But the fact of the matter is, they have UTMA accounts with TD Ameritrade, each individually, uh, that function just like savings accounts. Yeah. They don't. I mean, I guess they technically do have a savings account somewhere, but we don't really use them. Um, instead, we put all of this money into their 
brokerage accounts, and every couple times a year, we'll buy a new stock for their portfolio. Now, these are not these brokerage accounts are not 529s. They're not tied to anything other than just like an utmost savings, which does mean, as the listener mentioned, that could not necessarily will, but it could affect their qualifications for student loans down the road. Mm-hmm. Now. My perspective on that is that we have a system in place here that has a million different ways students can get financing for school. I mean, that that is plainly obvious based on the $1.5 trillion of debt that is outstanding today. Um, I'm not going to worry about five, six, or seven thousand dollars that they've accumulated in savings via investing. I'm not worried about that potentially offsetting any any uh, financial aid questions there. Uh, I would rather they have the lifelong lesson of how powerful investing in. Let's cross that student loan bridge when we come to it. I'm certain we can cross it. Um, I don't. I never even considered that yeah. as a factor in making the decision to open those accounts for those girls. So, what does Kevin do? Go back to his financial advisor and say, "What the heck, buddy? Get me out of that." Well, yeah. So, so I mean, honestly, I I would take this as an opportunity to review what are you paying and for what. Across the board with your financial advisory relationship, and and not to say that that paying fees or, or paying an advisor for advice is bad, but you should understand what you're paying and why. Uh, and this is clearly an example of maybe where you didn't understand how you were paying for that that advisor services. Um, the other thing that I'll go back to just a little bit is that he mentioned, well, just open an investment account in my name mm-hmm. and give it to her later. Um, that's totally fine. It remains on your books. It remains your asset. I think if you're going to keep it in a separate bucket, that's fine. But yeah, with these UTMA accounts, you are transferring legal ownership at the age of majority, which is either going to be 18 or 21 in most states. Um, that is unrestricted access to that money. At that mm. on that day, on that birthday, if the kid says, "Give me all that money, Mr. Advisor or Mr. Brokerage House," they have to. Now, Kevin, raise your kids right. Now you're well, yeah. So, so you're talking about a three-month-old. And you have no understanding at this point of whether or not that is a financially astute three-month-old, uh, and I don't think there is a way to make that judgment. Well, you keep up listening to Motley Fool answers. You're going to be pretty financially astute, Ross. Again, I think I, that's safe to assume. I'm, my baseline is an, as an optimist. I hope that they are a very financially responsible student. But I know plenty of folks, probably myself included, at 18 that shouldn't have been handed a big pot of money. So be be careful with the UTMA because if it's going to grow, hopefully, and and it could be uh, significant. All right, guys. Well, thank you for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. We're about to get kicked out. I can see Chris is pacing and upset that we've gone over. He's so mad. <laughs> Let's have a disclaimer. As always, The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for the stocks we talked about on the show. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard here. Oh, also, Ross, I didn't introduce you as a financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management. A sister company to The Motley Fool. There you go. All right, guys, that's the show. It is edited responsibly by Rick Engdahl. For Jason Moser and Ross Anderson, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. <laughs>